Welcome to Agam the Climate Podcast, a literary podcast about climate, consciousness, and crisis, but without jargon. We live in a time of uncertainty. Our future is still being written, which means there's still hope. Here we host conversations with writers and artists whose stories we need to guide the way. I'm Padma Perez. Thank you for joining me. For the book Agam, Filipino Narratives on Uncertainty and Climate Change, contributors were sent a photograph to use as a writing prompt. They were asked to consider the words uncertainty and ambiguity, while avoiding words and phrases such as climate change, global warming, adaptation, and mitigation. This process produced 24 poems and narratives in eight Philippine languages paired with 26 images. In Season 1, we bring you the voices behind the stories and poetry in the book. Here is Criselda Yabes reading an excerpt from her piece, Seeing. We can reinvent from the debris, from the shorn coconut trees, as testament to the washing out of our shores. Criselda Yabes is a seasoned journalist and award-winning author. She has worked as an international correspondent for the Associated Press, Newsweek, Reuters, The Washington Post, and The Economist, covering political insurgencies, rebellion, and coup d'etats in the Philippines, as well as war and crisis across the globe. She was born in Quezon City and spent her early years growing up in Zamboanga. Chris is also a novelist and recently came out with a new novel entitled Broken Islands, published by the Ateneo University Press. Hi, Chris. Thank you for being here today. How are you? I'm good. Thank you for having me. We are happy that you could share with us your piece, which was published in Agam, Filipino Narratives on Uncertainty and Climate Change. I want to ask you first, could you describe for our listeners the image that you received? It reminded me of that farmer walking on that dark road, walking towards the full moon, just maybe a week, 10 days after the typhoon struck. And his back was to us. So this photograph has his face before us. So I figured, could this be the face of that farmer? It, it was just an idea that occurred to me. So you and were you were in Guyan. I was in Guyan. I was on a police patrol car. It was the only car that could go around um, the town because, as you know, everything was really down. You know, the, the 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 whole place was devastated, and it was the only car that could go around. So I joined them. Yeah, and it was very late at night, and nobody could walk out, could go anywhere. They were mostly stranded or they they grouped themselves in like a you know small batches in front of the police station but when I saw that the police were moving out I said I'd like to go and join them just to see what it's like out there yeah so I saw that man just that one man yeah and that's an image that struck you yes and it still has you know it's still there I still see it I still remember it and so when I saw this photograph it's like you know of course, he's not the farmer, but it could be the face of a farmer. And it's a face of every farmer in this country, right? Mm-hmm. Um, weather beaten, you know, dark, dark, burnt by the sun. 
So it's that. It's it's a face that we see everywhere yeah. in our country. Yeah. And, and you wrote that in Seeing as well about this man walking that everywhere he he goes, he's us as well. Yes, he's us, right? Every Really, literally everywhere you go in this country, um, you will always see a man like him. And it's our story. It's also our story. It's our history. I mean, it, it tells you what the farmers have become, what majority of our people have become. So, yeah. And how did that lead to your writing, seeing? Well, symbolically, I thought that these were the people that we would always describe as resilient, right? We always had that term. I mean, for decades, it's always been, you know, the Filipinos are resilient. We have these disasters happening, not just man-made, but also political and other sorts of disaster. And it's always our resilience that, that, that get us through. And I thought, you know, it's about time that we should stop describing ourselves as that. Um I- why? Because we can't just be always surviving, you know, from one disaster mm-hmm. to another. We, I think we should get a grip on all, uh, get a grip on ourselves and create our own destiny, you know, and, and, and change and change what we have. I mean, just because we happen to be, you know, in the rim of fire and we get all these disasters, it doesn't mean that we should just keep rolling with it. Right. We can do something about it, right? Yeah. You know, small things like if you live um, on the coast, you know, you build mangroves or you strengthen the mangroves or you protect them. There are many ways of doing it, right? We have beautiful mountains. We can't just keep chopping it down. Um, And poverty is not an excuse for that. We can't say, well, that's the only way they can earn a living. No, there are other ways of earning a living, right? You can make the forest abundant and and show the people how to plant different crops yeah um and use that you know yeah. to 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 build a better country and i think that's yeah. a struggle that gets played out every day yeah. on so many different levels not yeah. just on the ground but also in policy yes. discussions yeah, because exactly. at the moment we're still working to get the government to be supportive of initiatives right. like that right. or to have policy that actually leans towards a better, kinder future right. rather than we're still very much in this extraction paradigm. Right. Um, and then it's practiced everywhere, almost yeah. everywhere you look. But I like how, going back to seeing, mm-hmm. I like how you refer to resilience and rehabilitation as awful words mm. or words we are stuck with. And I was wondering, is that the novelist in you or the journalist <laughs> in you? And is there even a divide between the two? Uh, no, I think it's the same for me. I, I think I I go from one to another. Of course, when I went to Gingwan, I went there as a journalist. But I also knew there were things that I could not put into a news article, for example, or a news feature. And, you know, in in this situation, you think about what's become of your country. Uh, And and that's something that you could put in literature, right? Um, You can assess that. You can see the people. You're connected with your own country. And and you can write about the lives of the ordinary people, you know, their daily lives. Uh, It doesn't have to be so um, caricature-ish. 
Uh, it doesn't have to be so stereotypical. Mm-hmm. I think just describing what it's like to live in our country should already show, you know, what we can make of it, right? Right. So, I mean, I think it's just that, you know. Um, and there's also a part of me, of course, that loves nature. So it's not like I would go in one place and say, you know, okay, I'm a journalist, I'm going to cover this, how many people died, and that's it, mm-hmm. right? It's done. It's not that. There's also a part of me that loves nature. And and you can't see this happening around you. You can't see the destruction happening around you. It's too much. Yeah. Um, I like, for example, I happen to think that our seas, the corals that we have are underwater, um, is like our museum, mm-hmm. you know? I think it's something, I mean, when you travel to other countries, you always see what they have in their museums. We don't have that. We have very limited right. things to show about right. our history and our heritage and our patrimony because we destroy them, right? And I thought maybe… In place of the new and modernizing, quote-unquote. Yeah, right? That's what we do. We think that, you know, oh, it's old. Let's destroy it. Let's build something new. And that something new is not necessarily nice. Or us. Or us, Mm -hmm. right? And I see that everywhere. I see that in what we do to our seas, for example. We have such beautiful chorus. And I would say, you know, this is like being in a museum. But we destroy them, right? I love that perspective. Yeah, and even like places like, for instance, Marawi, when when you had the siege, the battle there, and the whole place turned into rubble. Uh, but actually, the old Marawi was beautiful. But but even before the battle, people had already destroyed it. You know, it's soul, mm. it's old soul, and even with the kind of architecture that they have, that they'd put in place. So little things like that, it's almost like losing ourselves, you know, destroying who we are, our identity. With our own hands. That's With our own hands, yeah. Difficult yes. to reckon with. Yeah. And I don't know why it became like that. I really don't. Yeah. Um, I'm still grappling with with that question. You know, I, I, I go everywhere and I see that happening. And it still doesn't make sense to me. Um, <laughs> I, <yeah. laughs> you mentioned Marawi. <laughs> Heavy stuff. But yeah, yeah. You mentioned Marawi, so I want to turn now to your yeah. work in yeah. Mindanao because yeah. you've written a lot about Mindanao, right. yeah. um, the war, the military mm. presence there, mm. and also the the dream of peace. Mm. And climate change will surely have an impact on all the things you've seen and studied over time. So based on your work, what do you anticipate happening um, I don't want to be pessimistic because I, I, I remember having written a book um, a few years ago and it was called Peace Warriors and I went around Mindanao and I was still, I still had this tone of there's still hope, hmm. you know, but now I don't know if I can believe that. Um, Mindanao was the land of promise. It had everything, the best of our natural resources um, the best of our people because it was so diverse. It wasn't just the Muslims living there, but also um, non-Muslim ethnic groups. And it's just gorgeous. I mean, I you know, even just going to Sulu, you, you wouldn't even want to go to the other beaches in the Visayas, right? If once you've seen the beaches of Mindanao. But because of too much politics and decades of conflict, and if it doesn't stop... Right. If it carries on, 
I think we might just end up seeing Mindanao as a wasteland. And even when it comes to politics and the policy of our people, the local governments, and the same thing with the military. What happened in Marawi was the same thing that happened in Samboanga. So we can't just have the military, you know, destroying one city after another. It's it it's it just shouldn't be. That's that's just totally a nightmare. It it will become a nightmare if that happens to Mindanao. Oh. But at the same time, you also see parts of it growing. Mm-hmm. So you see, it's like we're always living in two worlds. There's one that's that's going away, there's one that's being destroyed, and but there's also one aspect that's being rebuilt. Yeah. You see it in different parts of the island. Yeah. So sometimes you don't know where to stand or you don't know where it's going. We don't have I think what what it is is that we don't have a point of reference anymore. So we just mm. go by what's happening, mm. you know. Um whoever is there, whoever's running the LGU, that's the only way you could see what might happen to that certain place. See like for example in Marawi, it could have easily been rebuilt, right? Yes. There was martial law. So yes. you have all the powers to put people together, all resources together to rebuild the place again. Or use another land, another place to build a new place again. But none of that happened. So why? When you say that it's like we don't have a point of reference, it's yeah. it's like not having your North Star or not yes. seeing the North Star yes. anymore, not knowing how to yes. orient yourself. Yeah. Yes. And it's interesting that you talk about we're almost in two worlds at the mm. same time. One is being destroyed and, and one is being regenerated. Well, we could go, we could dive into like the whole mythology of that and yeah. creation myths and yeah. how destruction and creation yeah. always come together. But as as a writer, and now and now we're trying to comprehend mm. climate change, how do we begin to approach that line between the world? that's being destroyed and the world that's being recreated or or maybe even between dystopia and utopia i'm not i'm not sure what do you think well first i don't know how we can make people understand um what's going on that i don't know because i think people will say one thing the leaders will say one thing and do another thing hmm. um so, for example, what happened in Tacloban, or I mean, in Leyte, um, you have a mayor that wanted to build a new township so that people would be safe from another typhoon, right? Which is, on paper, a good idea, right? You, yeah. you build a new place for them, but it doesn't have what it takes for it to become a new town. Right. So people, some of them, they end up going back to the same place where, where, where they had lost their loved ones because of the typhoon. Basically, going back to the scene of the crime, so to speak. Right. So you have that, and 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 there's already a, a two. I mean, this is like a jarring thing for people, right? Yes. So how will they know what to do? How will they understand it? Right. It's almost like a second disaster. Yeah. So they can't understand it, and how can they make? things better for them how will they understand it yeah um and 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 i saw the contradiction too for example in in tacloban you know when i went back a year two years later it was as if there was no typhoon it's as if this typhoon never happened 
because it, it was nice again. It was mm-hmm. pleasant. There were new hotels, new cafes. I mean, it was like yeah, a new scene altogether. A couple of years ago. Yeah. And it was like that, right? I, it was like, it struck me how if you had no idea that Haiyan happened, yeah. you wouldn't have seen it in the yes. landscape at yeah, all. Exactly. Um, and yet, because there's like a mini boom of sorts, you also have people destroying a small hill to turn it into a small mall, you know, uh, getting rid of this lake or reclaiming a certain portion of a lake because they're going to open a warehouse. So uh, if, if people see that, then they'll never know what to do. They'll never understand the impact of what's going to happen in the future again. It's as if, okay, the typhoon happened, we, we, many people died, and that's it. We'll just move on. We'll just move on in the same way that we know how, right? But we will never be able to build things the way we should be building things and say, you know, this is how we want it, right? To preserve us, to preserve yeah. our nation, to preserve us as a people. Yeah. So we don't have that. Yeah. And, and I think it's mainly because the leaders are showing us two different things at the same time. Mm-hmm. And if you have that, that's almost, you know, yeah. it's almost criminal, right? Yeah. yeah. So, Yun, uh, it's just that there's just too much, you know, the contradiction is too great. Right. And people can't deal with that for one thing, mm-hmm. right? If you're dealing with people who are mostly below poverty level, who didn't get enough education, how can they deal with that when every day they just have to make a living? Yeah. You know, they can't reflect. And that's the reason why in the provinces, nobody wants silence, right? First thing in the morning, you turn on the karaoke because you don't you, you don't want to have to think. Silence will make you think of your life, of mm-hmm. what you have to do, your future. I noticed that about us. We don't like solitude. We don't like the peace, quote unquote. I never saw it that yeah. way. Yeah. You know, I, I stayed um, in this new book that I wrote. I stayed in a coastal village. And I noticed that. It, to me, it's one of the most beautiful places to live in. And you're, you're there because you enjoy the peace and the quiet. But every day, you always have to turn on the radio. Full blast. Full blast, <laughs> right? So to them, even the idea that they're disrespecting others no. doesn't occur no. to them. It's like, you have, we have to do this because we can't think of our future. We can't think of our fate. Today, we just have to make a living. We have to go out there, fish, get some, get some fish for, to put on the table, get some food to put on the table, and that's it. We have to live day by day, and we can't think. Mm-hmm. I think to think would be too detrimental for them. It would be too painful, I think. Mm. I think. I, I don't know. but Perhaps. Yeah. 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 Your new novel, Hmm. you pointed out to me earlier that Seeing, which you wrote for Aga, contains the title already, Broken Island. Yes. Yeah. What's the novel about? Um, Well, actually, two different things. One, it has two characters. So one is a girl from a a coastal town in, in Cebu, and the other is a survivor from Giwan. From Samar. And I chose Giwan instead of Tacloban because that's where I spent most of my time after the typhoon. Mm-hmm. So I put their characters together in this town, you know, after in the aftermath of Haiyan. And, well, they had some kind of a symbiotic relationship. 
that's centered on one man who is the uncle of the girl living in Cebu and who is the amo, mm-hmm. the the master <laughs> yeah. of the survival, the little girl from from Giwan, from Samar. Mm. Yeah. So it's it's more it happens in the aftermath. Yes. Yeah. Two years after. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's not centered on the typhoon, but the typhoon yeah. is there. Yeah. The typhoon is the background. As a memory. As a memory. Yeah. 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 Would you say that there was a trajectory between seeing and broken islands? Um, okay, when I first started writing the novel, I was just concentrated on Cebu. Mm-hmm. I just wanted to do that. But um, when I came back, the the Haiyan happened just right after I came back. So, of course, I was there again as a journalist. And then I said, you know, if I'm writing a book about the Visayas, I cannot not include the typhoon, right? Right. So I had to rewrite the whole thing. Maybe oh, wow. 80% of it. Oh, wow. 80, 80% of my first idea. Yeah. So the storm hit your novel as well. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And initially, I just really wanted it to be as far away as possible. And then um, when a friend looked at it, he says, well, you know, you're also a journalist. So why don't you say what really happened? And it's true because actually the character um, of the girl who was from Samar, I chose her because when I was sitting in, in, in front of the police station in Giwan, um, there was a bunch, uh, a small group of girls just talking and they were talking about simple things, you know, and they were flirting with the other boys <laughs> and they were talking about what to wear and where to have a bath and, you know, listening to music. And I thought, this is odd, right? Ten days after a major typhoon and... And they're being malandi, you know. <laughs> when life goes on, <laughs> yeah, in that respect. exactly. So I used that. I saw I, that. Yeah. I read that part in the yeah. novel. So I said, I cannot, you know, I have to, I have to zero in on this. This is important to me because this is what struck me about the typhoon. It's that conversation that I moment. heard. Yes, yeah. So I like how you indicate that people also say that. Well, you're a journalist mm. too, besides being a novelist. So I want to turn back to that and ask you what your observations are on the coverage, the journalistic coverage on climate change. I remember 20 years ago, the first environmental story I did was going to a mountain in Isabella. Mm-hmm. It was about the logging. Okay, mm-hmm. It was about illegal yes. logging. And it was a fascinating story then because... Uh, you, I discovered for the first time that 80 or 90% of our virgin forests are gone. <sighs> and this was in the 19, maybe even late 80s. So that oh, was really? shocking for me. And yeah. I think that was the time when DNR decided to stop a majority of the concessions. But you see, over the years, politics played a part, right? right. So it wasn't sustained all throughout. I mean, you had one... Secretary, DNR secretary saying, you know, okay, we have to ban logging now just so that the forest will be, will recover. But then the succeeding secretaries, you you don't, you were lost already in what kind of policies they have in store. And you didn't really have an idea of what the future will be. So I think in some ways, journalism got stuck in that kind of thing too. Uh-huh. You know, you're following this policy and then another change in policy and then the next administration is different. And then, So 
where were they going, right? And it's also very rare in our country, and this isn't just in the field of environment, mm-hmm. environmental reporting, but in other fields as well, is that it's very rare that you see a, a whole perspective of where, of the entire thing. So most of the time you get bits and pieces right. na lang, right? right? You, you get a little bit of, this is what's happening here. Yeah. This is what's happening to the fishermen. Yeah. This is what's happening to the seas. You know, Does that uh, reflect a change in the way journalism is done? Or is it something else? You know, as a journalist, sometimes I think mainly the fault lies on, on the editors. Um, I think that maybe they should have... I'm not saying all, right? Mm-hmm. But, uh, you know, you, you, when you're following a story, somehow you stick to it, even if it's not news-breaking anymore. Ah. Diba? Mm-hmm. For example, with, with the disaster, typhoon, right? Yeah. So it was a breaking story for like 10 days, maybe a week, two weeks. But after that, as a journalist, and you're covering the environment, you should also try to find out what's happening elsewhere. Um, you know, what the weather people are doing, uh, the policy people are doing, or maybe just even going back to the same place, right? Yes. And what people do right after a disaster. It's not just the politics of it, but mm-hmm. it's how we have shaped our country. Right. That's so mm. important. That perspective is so important because... One of the things we're seeing in the discussion on mm. climate change is that people tend to focus on the drama. Yes. So the dramatic yeah. events, oh, like you said, the yeah. disaster and the immediate yeah. aftermath. Yeah. And then the long haul, there's no one really following yeah. that story. And there's other things which could be potentially more disastrous for us than the big storms. There are right. other things that climate change is doing yeah. already, like the... The bleaching of the coral reefs, mm-hmm. um, rising sea levels, mm-hmm. and um, those things could have, and even the change in the how the winds are moving mm-hmm. across right. the planet have yeah. an impact. But we're not paying attention to mm-hmm. that. There mm-hmm. are no stories yeah. about that because they're not as dramatic as thousands of people. Dying, right? Yes. yes. Yeah. So uh, I think, I, I think I, I don't know, I've traveled enough around our country and sometimes the first question that comes into my mind is, why do we destroy? You know, uh, why do we destroy what's good for us? And where does that come from? Is it ignorance? Is it uh, hatred of ourselves? Without being aware that we hate ourselves. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> right? That's um, and But then you also see like, you know, little golden pieces of hope, you know, like a one woman that I, I remember going up to Bantayan Island and there was this one woman. I think she was like a counselor of the LGU and suddenly she knew all the species of mangroves wow. and which kind should be planted where. Can you do this in your backyard? Can you do this by the shore? Can you do this by, you know, the coast and all that? And she knew that. So, you know, there's always someone rising. Yes. 
to say we have to do something. And we need to tell their stories yes, too. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Diba? So nobody does that, that follows a follow-up story or even just to write a story of a simple person yeah. doing the simplest things. Yeah. It always has to be like in a bigger… You can do that naman eh. You, in journalism, you can do that. You mm-hmm. use a story of a person to show the bigger picture. Yes. It doesn't always have to be big. Yeah. Right? Big, 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 big. And, and then numbers, small. numbers, numbers, and numbers. Which is numbers. what you said yeah. also earlier. Yeah. Diba? So people, like, yeah, when we were talking about it, it's like when you see numbers and um, uh, a data, you know, a whole data of, of what's going on, it's, it becomes cerebral. So you can't really feel um, what this means. But if you talk about this woman, why did she yes. become interested in the different species of mangroves? Yes. Right? And she's not a scientist, you know, she's mm-hmm. one of the counselors. Yeah. And for her, it was a battle to fight against the other counselors or even the mayor, I think. I can't remember the story now. To convince them to really plant these mangroves. That's a really great Diba? story. You know, something that like that. That we're not hearing. That we're not, yeah, exactly. Yes. And she's in, you know, in one tiny village in the very northern part of Cebu. But that's it. We should be aware of what we have in our country. Just because we're an archipelago, it doesn't mean we can't go from one island to another. We can't let the water divide us, right? It's supposed to be. It's, oh, it's supposed to bind us. Connecting yeah, us. Yeah, connecting us. It's our highway. Yes, right? Yeah. So yeah. if you hear little stories like that and you say, oh, oh nga, no? Yeah. You know? So we can uh, we can switch this around and we've been saying what journalists are not doing. Mm-mm. So all these things you're saying are things that journalists can do. They can do it. They really can. There's always a way. You know, I mean, if only I had a, a team, a newspaper, like, you know, and I would get a team <laughs> of reporters to do things. But then I could easily say, you know, there's this story here and there's yes. a story there. But see, as it happens, I go to these places because I wanted to go hiking. Bird and watching. Bird watching. Bird yes, yeah. yes. And then you run into stories like this that you can't really write. I mean, you can talk about it a little bit on Facebook and with your friends, but that's that's just a drop, you know? It's different. I mean, writing a story actually means going there and talking to people. Right. And if somebody said this, you have to find out if that's really true. Mm-hmm. So it's like taking a week of your time, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you know? It's, it's, it's In not In practical writing. terms, is yeah. there support for that kind of journalistic work? Actually, not much. Um, I think even the local papers don't have that much. Um, well, first, I don't know because I don't know how the lo- local newspapers are running their their day to day stuff. But actually, they can do it if they really want to. They really can. They can find a way. I mean, I've seen other newspapers in other countries, you know, yes. Malaysia and Singapore and Indonesia. If they can do something like that. This can be like, for example, now we don't even have magazines. Mm. We don't have news magazines, and these are the 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 platform. I mean, these are um, uh, I'm thinking of platform. It's social media, but this is like one way for you yeah. to be able to write a longer story. Because the the disadvantage of writing daily news is that you're limited to 500, 600 words or characters right? even yeah. sometimes. Yeah. Diba? yeah. Whereas if you have a news magazine, you can do a long form, and we don't have that. Mm-hmm. We don't have that outlet. That's it. That's what I was and I was thinking of. We don't have that. 
Yeah. And people don't want to read longer pieces. But actually, if you make this story interesting, they will. People will read it. Yeah. Diba? Yeah. Pero kung panay statistics parate, mm. wala na. Parang, ah, ah, this is too much. Yes. You know? Yeah. But if you talk about, uh, if you just describe a place in this little village, coastal village in Bantayan, and this woman, eh, it could be interesting. It yeah, even yeah. has a history. Bantayan has a history. Yes. Yeah. Diba? Yeah. So, yun. So, let's hope that that this can happen. So uh, this kind this this yeah. there has to be um, I think they have to be a lot more enterprising now the journalists you know it just because there's a main story or political story it's not always this story somebody can do that there's there are always other reporters who can do that but yeah. if you can go out and do other things yeah that would be really great Yeah. I like what you said that it doesn't have to be breaking news mm. all the time. Yeah. Because sometimes all those all those pieces that you look at over a long trajectory yeah. tell can tell a really big story yeah. when you put it all together. And you never know, you might stumble into a story that's really right. big. Right. Right? Right. That's just sitting there but nobody's doing anything about it. Remember this woman, this journalist who went to Africa and found out that there was this famine. Mhm. You know things like that. Yeah. Uh, and 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 I think there's there's a lot of that. I mean, just in Tacloba now, you can do a story on how all these business establishment are rising and why. Mm-hmm. Are, why are they getting permits just like that, left and right? You know, uh, are the are is is doing a reclamation project the right thing? Did mm-hmm. they get permit permit from DNR from the LGU? You know. Little things like so that. So much can, to look yeah, into. Yeah. What about for novelists? Would there be a similar role? Would it be different uh, for for writers of fiction than it is for journalists? You know, the novel, when I first finished it, um, they had to get a reader. That's the rule, because when you send it to a press, well, this is a university press, their um, rule was that, you know, they would have to show it to a reader, right? Yes. And actually, the first reader who read my stuff dissed it. He really hated it. Ooh. And and he was talking about how uh, it was politically incorrect because the, the voice of the rich girl was mm-hmm. different from the voice of the poor girl. Right. Uh, and that, why didn't I turn it into a big thing? Because the typhoon was uh, uh, a, a very political story. But the thing there is, in literature, there's no such thing as being politically incorrect. Yeah. Right? That's why it's literature, right? Mm-hmm. It's how you tell the story. It's mm-hmm. how you tell a beautiful story or whatever story there is. And it's a space for breaking boundaries. Exactly. Which politically correctness sets up. Yes. Yeah. Um, and Political the sec- correctness. Sorry. Yeah. And the second thing too was that you know, the typhoon. And I said, if I write about the typhoon, it's going to be the same story that others had read before. Right. And and me as a journalist, why will I keep writing what I've always been writing? I'm writing literature, right? I want to write something what I couldn't write in a news story. Yes. You know, how it feels like to see the sun rising and setting, the sounds of the fishermen in the sea. What, 
you know, it's just the way they clack their their oars against the hull of the boats, you know, True. things like that. I want to be I'm able to write about these things. The sound of the birds first thing in the morning, uh, you know, why some kids kill the birds. You know? The taste of puto. Yes. If it's made with purple rice. Yes, exactly. That's in your novel too. <laughs> yeah. Or, you know, just getting a papaya and yeah. eating it right there. And then, so why am I going to be political right away? Why does it have to be a political? In fact, in the end, it is political already. You know, the fact that you're describing your country, that is political. Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. It doesn't have to be, uh, you know. Okay, here's the mayor who, who who symbolizes the good and the mayor, another person who symbolizes the bad. I think there are That's many things. That's not interesting anymore. Yeah. yeah. Right? We're, we're, we're in a gray area. We're always swimming somewhere. We're trying to find our way out. Both politically, environmentally, everything. Yeah. Right? So so that was his that was the reader's first reaction. And I couldn't sleep, you know, when I got that, when I saw it. Mm. And so I had to show it to a friend. And um now it was a matter of shaping the novel. But I still stuck to the idea that I want to be able to write the little things that people do. Right. How do people look like when they leave church, you know, on a Sunday? Yeah. How are they dressed? You know, uh, how does the light come t- through from the from the stained glass, which was ruined by the typhoon? You know, I I want to do that. Yeah, I want to ask you yeah. for some words for young journalists that might be listening to this, yeah. and um, wrapping up everything you said about what journalists aren't doing mm. and what they could be doing. Yeah. Can you say something for, for young journalists that might want to pursue the story of climate change or the environment? Right. I was just thinking, not just in terms of journalism, but also in literature, is that you have to be connected to something. You know, for you to follow a story and... See, as a journalist, you already have to have that instinct, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, if you don't have that, sorry to say this, but there's no point being a journalist. If you, if don't, you don't have, have that instinct to follow, follow a story. Is it something that can be honed? Yes, over time. Yeah, over time. Okay. And that's usually because of an editor guiding you. At least that's my experience, right? Mm -hmm. When I started out as a journalist, there was this one editor who was really hard on me, but I followed him. Right. And then little by little, I learned to see what he was teaching me. And that's how I learned to follow stories. Um, And I think that's what we should do. It's not just, you know, oh, today I have to write this story and I'm done. Bahala na tomorrow, the next day. And it's not like that, you know? There, there, there's, there's, there's more to be done. I mean, it, you should know what to follow. It's not just an assignment on a daily basis. Um, it's not just so you can get a byline for today. Right. Um, because really, at the end of the day, you know, you're only as good as your last story. So if you're just going to concentrate on one story and say, oh, okay, I got this story now. You know, I've got my byline. 
you end, you're, you're over, your end. You, 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 that's the end of the line for you. Because there are more stories and you should look for them or let them come to you. You know, and it only comes to you when you're open to things, when you're connected to what's happening around you. About uh, research, because as a novelist and yeah. also as a journalist, research is such an integral part of the work process. Yeah. How do you go about it? Um, okay, well, basically my advantage as a journalist is that you do a lot of research, right? Mm-hmm. But I've also learned that when I'm looking for a story, I don't keep Googling Mm-hmm. Okay, so you, I mean, if you spend too much time, you get ob- obsessed with that, looking at other people's story, and it will influence you. Yes. And so when you go to one place, you'll be looking for a story that others already have. Mm-hmm. But what if you leave a huge space of not Googling and leaving things open to adventure and the unknown and other possibilities that will guide you to another story or a better story or even a big story. So really, I mean, Google is wonderful if you go to places to find out where you are, you know, how to go from one place to another or to just get a definition of one word. Yes. But really, when it comes to looking for stories, Google is not the place, right? You have to find it, yeah, on your own. That's so interesting because... For many people, Google is a work tool. Yeah. And that's the first place people will look. Yeah. I think as a journalist or even as a writer, you should be proud that you have a primary source, that you're not just repeating what other people have. It's For a journalist, it's great to get a scoop. We call that a scoop, right? Mm -hmm. When you have something that others don't have. But how do you get a scoop? Do you get a scoop by Googling? No, you don't, right? You look for that story. You look for your own scoop, that will be Googled later on <laughs> because people will realize you have something that the others don't. But Google is not the guide. And not yeah. the place to start. Not the place to start, yeah. Unless you just want to know the geography of the place you're going to, which is what I use for geography. Lang. But yeah. other than that, I don't. I, I, I don't Google at all. Thank you. Yeah. yeah. Thank Welcome. you for yeah. sharing your stories and insights with us, Chris. Thank you. Thanks, Padma. To listen to Griselda Yabes read Seeing in full, visit the Agam website or check out the reading list of Agam the Climate podcast on Spotify. Thanks for listening to Agam the Climate podcast, a podcast about climate change without jargon. Continue the conversation with us next episode. We are a part of the AGAM Agenda out of the Institute for Climate and Sustainable Cities based in the Philippines. You can hear past episodes and engage online with us on Facebook, Twitter, and agam.ph. That's A-G-A-M dot P-H. Special thanks to Ground Bravo Studios, Far Eastern University, and you, our listeners, for your support.